in part two of a series called Living in Light of the End. We're studying the two uh, epistles, the two letters to the Thessalonians. From the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, his followers have always lived in expectancy of his return. And that blessed hope impacted for every believer down through history, every day, every decision, every detail of their lives. And if you're an apostolic believer, that blessed hope still impacts every day, every detail, and every decision of your life if you're doing it right. The challenge is that keeping your focus on that day, which is coming, can be a little challenging if you're in one of those seasons when you're just trying to get through this day, today, without losing your step. And so in his two letters to the Thessalonians, Paul really deals with this uh, theme of the coming of the Lord. He takes his time getting there. He's laying a foundation, but he's going to correct some misconceptions about the coming of the Lord as he goes through. And he teaches us overall what we need to know, especially in this day and age, that the purpose of prophecy is not just wild speculation and everybody picking a corner and picking an argument and picking a position and then fighting about it. The purpose of prophecy is to motivate, motivate all of us to be ready for the coming of the Lord whenever that happens. In chapter 1, we studied last week, Paul commends these believers in Thessalonica for becoming followers of their leaders and followers of the Lord. And the word followers there is literally imitators. He praises them that they have imitated their leaders. Uh, our leaders and those that are before us and our elders in the church, to us, they're, they're kind of like Jesus with skin on. They're a Jesus we can see. He impacts their lives and so we can use them as a pattern. And that's what they've done. And he praises them also that they've become an example to other churches far and wide throughout that region that other believers can follow. And he ends chapter 1 by commending them for living in light of the end. They're expecting Jesus to return. And he praises them, he commends them that no matter how bad it gets, they are remaining confident that God is going to deliver them from the wrath to come. He will revisit that phrase in these two letters. God is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. And Paul calls this in chapter 1 verse 3, he calls this the patience of hope. We are hoping for that day. We are waiting for that day. We are looking for that day. And it gives us patience, endurance, and strength, stamina, fortitude to get through this day because we're looking for that day. So now we open chapter 2 tonight. If you've got your Bible, uh, flip that open and, and walk down through. And if you've got a pen and you mark in your Bible, I hope you do. I hope you make your Bible your Bible. And uh, I hope you mark in it and you can write down as the Lord speaks to you or prompts you. In chapter 2, Paul sets out to do something that apostolic leaders never like to do. His ministry and his motives have been unfairly criticized by those who would damage the church. And so Paul feels compelled to defend himself for the good of the church. It's awkward for Paul. But to let these criticisms go unchallenged would be spiritually damaging and devastating to many people. It's not the first time he has had to do this. And unfortunately, it will not be the last time. In 2 Corinthians, to another church, Paul said, 
I am become a fool in glorying. You've made me defend myself and tell you everything that's good about me and everything I've done for God. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. You should have been saying the good things about the apostle, the leader, the evangelist, the pastor. You should have commended me. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Paul said, I've got this. I know I'm nothing, and God is everything in me and through me. But the same uh, reasoning would say that if God gave me a ministry, and if God put me in a position of an apostle, then you should commend me for that, not criticize that ministry. And so I start... Tonight in chapter two, this is what I love about walking down through Bible books. You get to address uh, elephants in the room and awkward subjects and everything. And it's just like, we're just reading the Bible. But let me tell you something about leaders, especially in the church. Criticism is the unseen price that leaders pay to fulfill their ministry. You may not be a critic. You might not be a gossip. You might not have a bad attitude or have some kind of issue, but I promise you there's somebody willing to step into your place and do it for you in the year 2020. Now, to criticize, that means, uh, I looked it up early this morning. Criticize means attack, abuse, badmouth, bash, backbite, backstab, blame, blast, castigate, condemn, chew out, call down, cut down, dress down, dump on, rag on, rip up, run down, disparage, denigrate, disapprove, find fault, gossip, slam, slander, smear, judge, jump on, put down, pick apart, nitpick, tear apart, tear down, tear into, rip into, take to task, tongue lash, tell off, jump down their throat, and give them a piece of your mind. If you've ever felt any of those impulses, go pray. Can you imagine any Christian anywhere at any time for any reason doing that to any of their leaders? And yet it happens. And it happened to the greatest apostle in church history. This is exactly what Paul experienced over and over again. Unfair criticism has caused more than one young person to leave the church, more than one pastor to give up on ministry, more than one family to pack it in and say, we're not going back. We need to be very careful with our tongues and our words and our attitudes toward other people. And so Paul starts. He doesn't waste any time. You say, I thought he was going to talk about the end times. Well, he is, but he's laying a foundation because one of the spirits that is loose in the last of the last days is this spirit that criticizes and picks apart and maligns anything it doesn't like, anything that's not comfortable. And Paul faces that. So, so chapter 2, for yourselves, brethren... You know our entrance in unto you when we came to Thessalonica. You remember that, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, you remember at Philippi, we, we were kicked out of town there. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. You see, some of Paul's critics have been saying that his ministry in Thessalonica had been empty. It had been in vain. It was empty of integrity. 
that Paul somehow, some way, was doing ministry to build up Paul instead of building up the church. And Paul quickly shoots that idea down. He reminds them, just before I landed in Thessalonica, I was in Philippi. And there I was shamefully treated. I was arrested and beaten and imprisoned and basically run out of town in Philippi. And that certainly wasn't good for my ego, my reputation, my finances, my comfort, or my ministry. And yet, when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, despite that abuse and misuse of this great apostle, he was just as bold when he arrived in Thessalonica to preach the gospel. And he preached and he led and he prayed and he built that church despite the opposition and despite the criticism he encountered. Verse 3, he said, Our exhortation, our preaching to you, it was not of deceit, it was not of uncleanness, and it was not in guile. Deceit, uncleanness, and guile. He said, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, here's the key to his ministry, not in pleasing men, but pleasing God because it's God that tries our hearts. It's God that knows our hearts. Now, Paul emphatically states right here, brothers and sisters, that his life and ministry was not built on deceit. And the word there has reference to false doctrine. I wasn't a preacher that just preached whatever was popular or whatever everybody else was preaching or what people demanded or what tickled the ears of congregations. My ministry was not built on false doctrine. It was not built on moral impurity. I wasn't something different in private than I was when I stood in the pulpit and preached to you. I wasn't, my ministry wasn't built on moral impurity or uncleanness. And neither was it built on guile. My ministry, my preaching, my leadership was not built on clever manipulation and, uh, of people and of things. It was God who called Paul to preach. And so it is God that Paul is trying to please. And I would suggest to everybody in here, I know I'm not talking to a, a preacher's meeting tonight, but I'm talking to a saint's meeting. This is our Bible study. And I would suggest that you, whether you're a leader a preacher, a minister, an evangelist, whether you're a great saint of God, that you live your life for an audience of one and his name is Jesus Christ and don't worry about what everybody else's opinion says. Paul is trying to please God, not men because Paul knows that only God can try his heart. Only God can accurately judge his heart and his motives. He says, neither at any time used we flattering words. As you know, he keeps saying that over and over. As you know, you know this. You saw us. You followed us. You heard the sermons. You were in the services. You remember. He keeps saying it over and over through these letters. As you know. He, he, he says, neither at any time used we flattering words. As you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. And God is our witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Paul said, I never manipulated those I pastored. I didn't use flattering words to try to influence their decisions. And I didn't put on a cloak of covetousness 
to influence their giving. I didn't ask them for something because I was secretly taking it out of the offering plate. I didn't clothe myself in a cloak of covetousness. And he said, God is my witness that I was honorable and ethical. But then he says something that I think some leaders do struggle with. He said, nor of men sought we glory, not of you, not of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. He said, I didn't need constant affirmation or glory is his word. I didn't need affirmation from those that I was leading. There were times when God spoke to me, gave me a sermon, gave me a direction, gave me something that I needed to do or needed to say or a way I needed to lead. And I didn't need the affirmation of everybody. If you need everyone's affirmation every day of your life for everything you are doing, you are going to be one sorry, sad little individual. Because the Bible tells us the fear of man brings a snare. If you're always looking for a positive opinion from everybody around you, when you don't get it, you collapse like a house of cards. But if your affirmation comes from the Lord, and if your affirmation comes from his word, then you're okay because you don't just have self-worth, you've got God-worth. God says that you're worth something. God says that you're valuable, and that's enough. Paul said, I, I, I didn't need glory for men. I didn't need affirmation. Nor did I need to constantly wield authority. I, I didn't have to be burdensome. I didn't have to be the, the heavy guy that was always saying, do this because I said so because I'm the leader. Paul said, I didn't have to have affirmation and I didn't need to always wield authority to get things done. And now he tells us a secret. He said, actually... I used something that was counter-cultural and counter-intuitive as I led the church in Thessalonica. It was counter-cultural and counter-intuitive back then. It is counter-cultural and it is counter-intuitive still today. He says in verse 7, but we, we weren't authoritarian. We weren't uh, pulling a power trip every day. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse, literally a nursing mother, cherith, cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not only, not the gospel of God only, it wasn't just the message we preached, but we imparted our own souls. We invested our lives in this because you were dear unto us. You would never have expected that. You would never have seen that coming from this brave, bold apostle who faced down the Judaizers and faced down the Roman Empire. You wouldn't have expected this, but Paul's ministry as a pastor was marked by gentleness. He cherished each baby believer as a mother would nurse her children. He was gentle with them. Now, you know as a parent, those of you that are, that to be gentle with babies, sometimes you've got to be not so gentle with some other people. And that was Paul. He would go to the wall. He would go to bat to protect the innocent and the young believers. He was always like that in his ministry. But here's the thing. Just as a nursing mother's body digests food, 
transforms it into milk, and then literally she imparts her own life to that child, here's what Paul did. He not only preached the gospel to them to birth them, but he taught them the scriptures to grow them. And as he did, he lovingly imparted, he says, his own soul to them because they were dear to him. I don't know how you feel about it. I think you feel the same as I do because you're here. I happen to love Bible study. I love Bible study across the table. I love Bible study over the internet. I love Bible study on the phone. And I love Bible study in the church and a midweek service because there's something about the scriptures being imparted to us that helps us grow. One of the greatest things that ever happens to me as a pastor is somebody comes up to me and says, you know that series we did on whatever. It could be years back. Well, I'm reading through that book and I found that series on YouTube and I'm walking through that series while I'm reading that book of the Bible and it's making sense, Pastor. I just think, okay, thank you, Jesus. Job done on that one at least. Because that's the reason we do this every week. This is not because we need one more offering from you. We didn't take an offering tonight. This is not just because we want to see your smiling faces because we can't. You're all wearing masks. This is not just because we need a certain amount of service real estate to fill up the week. This is because we love and cherish the word of God. And though you may not sense it today or tonight or even tomorrow by noon, there will be a moment when understanding and revelation that you receive from the word of God will hit you like a freight train and you'll think, oh yeah, the Bible says, so get out of my face, devil. I've got the word for today. And it happens because of the strength that's imparted from the scriptures. And so this is what Paul does. For all true pastors, there are frauds out there. Oh my goodness, don't we know it. But you know about your profession. If, if you're a salesperson, you know about fraudulent salespeople. And if, if you're in the medical profession, you know about medical people that they've done all kinds of terrible things. And, and if you're in some other kind of profession, you know all the frauds in your profession. Well, well, pastors, we know about all the frauds and all the kooks in our profession. Yes, there are some people that are just downright kooky and they call themselves pastors. And we, we know that. It's, it's okay. We, we know. You can breathe easy. We know. We already know there's wackos and weirdos out there. But that's not most pastors and leaders, especially in the apostolic church. For all true pastors, this thing called the work of God, it entwines your life and it entangles your emotions and it engages your heart with the wonderful, beautiful, faithful people of God in ways that are very difficult sometimes to put into words, but it's there, it's real. And Paul had it. He said, you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Paul just changed the metaphor on us. He was comparing himself to a mother nursing a child. That was his pastoral style, gentleness and nurturing. Now he's changed the metaphor. Now instead of that, he's going to compare himself to a father. And like most fathers, if you walk up to any man and you say, 
who are you? He's going to name his occupation. That's what he's going to do. 90-something percent of men do that. Who are you? I'm a plumber. No, who are you? No, I'm a plumber. That's what he's going to do. And Paul just shifted to the metaphor of a father. And like most fathers, he starts talking about the work he is doing on behalf of his family, which for him is the family of God. Paul had been accused many times, you're just doing ministry for money. But it was actually the opposite. His ministry cost him dearly in every way imaginable. Paul was a bivocational apostle. He received some support from a few churches for his missionary journeys. For example, the church in Philippi where he had been previously, they sent him some money as he planted the church in Thessalonica. So he had that. But he also worked as a tent maker to support himself so he would not be chargeable. He would not be a financial burden to anyone. It was Paul's right to receive financial support as a minister of the gospel. But he told the Corinthian church, he said, I would rather die than give anyone ammunition to impugn my motives and assault my integrity. Here's what he said to them. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. In other words, Jesus ordained, God ordains that those that are preaching and leading in his church, that they should be able to make a living doing that so they can be free to exercise that ministry. But he said, I haven't used that right. I haven't used that privilege. I haven't used that policy. I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. I'm not even writing that it's my right to receive finance for preaching the gospel. I'm not even writing to you so you'll feel guilty and change it. He said, here's his punchline. He said, it would be better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. He said, I would rather die than give somebody a, a, a bullet to put in their gun of criticism to say, Paul's just interested in making money. So Paul said, first of all, I'm a father. I love what we do in nurturing people spiritually. And I work hard at it. He said, I work day and night. I labored night and day. But Paul knew that the most important way a father provides for his family is not that working. It's not his estate it's his example. That's the most important way that a father provides for his family. So Paul wasn't just a hard worker. Paul lived a life before the Thessalonians that exemplified three things. Look at this. You are witnesses, and God also, how holily, that's the only time that word apply, appears in the Bible. It just means holy. I don't know why King James translators put it like that. Everybody say holily. You say that 10 times real fast and you will lose your dentures. Holily, justly, and unblameably. You are our witnesses and God also. How holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Paul said, I lived a life before you that exemplified three things. Holiness. I lived a holy, godly, righteous life. My life exhibited, he said, the second thing was 
justly. And that, that refers to just decisions or, or, or just judgment. So it's wisdom is what it is. He said, I lived a life of wisdom. I lived a life of making good decisions and giving good advice. And, and then he said, I lived a life of ethics. I was unblameable. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It means that what you see is what you get. That I'm the same in public as I am in private. That, that you don't have to worry that there's some kind of secret agenda or secret life or, or whatever. That's what Paul, that's how he lived. A life of holiness, a life of wisdom, a life of ethics. He said, you're witnesses. He said, I was a father who was interested in, in growing up those new converts, those babies in Christ in the church. And he said, I did it by leaving them a good example. He, he said, and one more thing. He said, and you know, there he goes again. You know, you remember, you were there when I planted that church. You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, here it is, as a father doth his children. Why does a father do that? Why does a father exhort and comfort and charge us so you would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory? So here's what Paul says. He knew how important it was for fathers to instruct and encourage and correct their children. All of you parents in here, instruct, encourage, and correct. What was the goal for him as a spiritual father? It was to make them good kingdom citizens. That's what it was. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, you have 10,000 instructors. You got all kinds of people that can kind of give you a Bible lesson or explain a scripture to you. And I would say never have we lived in a generation when there have been more voices in the wide world of Christendom with all kinds of doctrines and teachings and sermons and preaching and instruction. And you've got to have a good apostolic filter if you're going to engage with a bunch of that or you will get led astray. And you'll start thinking a lot of stuff that matters very much in the Word of God doesn't matter at all in the church. You have to be careful. Paul said, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. You got all kinds of people that will give you sermons and teaching and preaching. But who have you got that actually cares that you make it to heaven and cares enough to tell you, preach to you, teach to you the truth? You have not many fathers. Lots of instructors, lots of talking heads, not many fathers. He said, but in Jesus Christ, I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul's image here, is of a pastor being like a father to new converts. So that's his image. But let me say to every dad, especially in here, and every parent, that those principles should apply equally to Christian fathers in Christian homes and Christian mothers for that, example, for that matter. We need to instruct our kids. We need to encourage our kids. And we need to correct our kids. And if you leave one of those out, you've got a three-legged stool that's going to tip over and crash and hurt somebody. Kids need instruction, kids need encouragement, and kids need correction. And so that's Paul's spiritual image. But it applies to every home and every family. Now, he's going to shift gears. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing. He said, when I pray... I am always talking to Jesus about you people. When I talk to Jesus, 
he and I have conversations about the wonderful saints that he has allowed me to preach to, to teach to, and to pastor. And he said, here's one of the things that I'm so grateful to Jesus for because when you receive the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men. You listen to preachers and teachers, pastors and leaders. You listen to them teach you the word of God knowing full well they are frail and fallible, that they are human beings, that they're not angels. You listen to them preach the word of God. And you didn't receive it as a word from men, but you received this as it is in truth. This is not the word of men. It is the word of God. He said, when you heard preaching and teaching, you didn't just say, well, that's pastor's opinion. You didn't just say, well, that's yet another sermon. You didn't just say, well, I'll... One, one lady in my... Uh, in my past when I was a kid, I used to hear her say, well, when so-and-so preaches, I just take the meat and throw away the bones. I wanted to hit her with a ham hock. That's crazy. When the word of God is preached, it's all meat. When the word of God is preached, it's all something that would benefit us. Now, now here, here's the thing. Paul said, when you heard, he said, I talk to Jesus about you dear people all the time. Because I talk to Jesus about how when you hear the word preached through your leaders, through your pastors, he said, you don't receive it as just a word from a man. You receive it as it should be received. You receive it as a word from God. And because you do, it effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul's proud of these people. He's especially grateful for the honor that they show to the ministry. They don't receive preaching as a word of men because a word of men you can easily ignore and just tune it out and carry on. But they receive preaching as it is in truth. So I will say this, and I'll speak on behalf of all of our pastors because if I only speak on behalf of me, it's super awkward, but it's awkward anyway. When your pastor's messages are the word of God to you and you receive them as such, then they will work effectively in your life. But if your pastor's messages are only one more voice of many voices that you listen to constantly all week long and they're all kind of just in a big muddle, what you have done is you have diluted the power of the word of God in your life because God built his kingdom not on the internet. God built his kingdom on the local church in every place we can get one, plant one, start one, support one. That's how God built his local kingdom. So what we do here is exponentially more important than what you can watch or listen to on the internet every week of your life. And I'm not saying there's not good stuff there. Beverly and I listen and watch and she's got something on all the time. I often walk into the house and say, who's hollering? And sometimes it's me. A lot of the time it's Pastor Jack. And then sometimes it's other people. But, but, but she's always got preaching on. That's wonderful. I'm not saying don't do that. 
I'm saying that there has to be a place that you as a believer, you as a family are accountable to. And when you come there, that's where you not only get a sermon, you get direction. That's where you not only get just kind of some little message that's put together, but your pastor who's trying to lead your church is preaching to your church family and setting direction. And there has to be something in your heart that says, that's not just a message from a man. That's a message from my pastor to my church. And when you receive it, not as a word from man, but as a word from God, it has nothing to do with the personality in the pulpit. It has everything to do with God's plan for his church. And I can give you this advice because I've lived this advice. When a pastor who's a pastor of mine preaches a message, my hair stands up. My ears are tuned in. My eyes are open. My heart is ready because I want to grow by the word of God. Paul said, I talk to Jesus all the time about you people in Thessalonica because unlike all these critics that are always trashing everything about my ministry, here's what I love about you. When I preach to you and when I teach you the word of God, you're eager and anxious and ready to receive it, not as a word from Paul, but as a word from Jesus. And because you're like that, the word digs deep and works effectively in your life. Paul uses two Greek words here that you wouldn't notice because they're both translated the same in English. They're both translated received. The first received in these verses, in this verse, uh, the first received means to hear with the ear. But there's another receive in this verse, and the second one means to welcome with the heart. So Paul said, it's not just that you hear the sermon with your ear, it's that you came ready to study, ready to be challenged, ready to be changed, ready to be lifted and empowered by the word. And so you didn't just hear it with your ear, you welcomed the word with your heart. It's the very same thing James said, be, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Because if you're only a hearer and not a doer, you're just deceiving yourself. You're a sermon taster. You're not getting any benefit from it. It's like, uh, it's like junk food. It, it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Verse 14, for you, brethren, I talk to Jesus about you people all the time. I talk to him about the wonderful church in Thessalonica. And you, brethren, Here's what I talked to Jesus about. You became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. Way back in, in, in Israel. He's, he's over in, in, in Macedonia now, but he's talking about these churches way back in Judea. And he said, you became followers. Your church became a follower of those churches. For you have also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Paul has already commended them in this book for being followers of the Lord and followers of their leaders, imitators of their leaders. And now he commends them for being followers of other apostolic churches. Let me tell you something. We are not just cut adrift to kind of do our own thing and figure it out. We are in a powerful fellowship around the world with so many wonderful apostolic churches. And then there's other fellowships that preach wonderful, the same truth. And, and, and they, they believe uh, the doctrines of the scripture. And so there is this huge apostolic movement that literally girdles the globe. It's all over the place. And we are in fellowship with those people. So 
We're not just trying to carve out something that's different in New Brunswick. We are wanting to be in fellowship and in identity with all of those great apostolic churches. And Paul said, when I talk to Jesus about you in Thessalonica, I admire you and I brag on you and I'm thankful for you because you followed those other great churches. And, and, and said, he said, you're imitators in one more way though. Those churches in Judea have been persecuted by their own countrymen, the Jews who didn't receive Jesus. And unfortunately, there's one more way you're an imitator of them. That's happening in Thessalonica too. There are people that are critical of you there are people that say you're a cult. There are people that say you're not right. There are people that say you believe false doctrine. There are people that are persecuting you because you've declared your loyalty to Jesus. And in, in their case, it is the Jews who did not receive Jesus. He said they both killed the Lord Jesus and they killed their own prophets and now they're persecuting us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men. And those people, that little segment, they're religious, but they're not apostolic. He said, they forbid us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Do you know that in the New Testament, there was this contingent of people who were Jewish, but they didn't want anybody except for Jewish people to have any chance at salvation. They didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. He, he said... They forbid us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Now that's a tongue twister, but here's what Paul's saying. These Judaizers, they followed Paul around. They have made trouble for him in every city where he's preached the gospel. They've tried to cause trouble and scandal and disgrace for his ministry. And Paul said, you know what? They're just repeating the sins of their fathers. Their fathers killed the prophets. Their fathers crucified Jesus. They simply don't want Gentiles to be saved. They don't want anybody that is not like them in the church of the living God. And they will do anything they can to prevent it. And Paul said, that attitude is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's like a, a container of sewage. It's filling up always, he said. It's just filling up and it's a stench in the nostrils of God and he is going to judge them for that attitude. Well, that has nothing to do with us in the 21st century except maybe this. Is there some person, some group, some lifestyle, some sinful conduct that secretly you don't want to see them come into the church? You would just be just as happy if it just stayed very comfortable just like this because we all kind of know each other and everybody that's here by now, they're either a good saint or they're at least a good sinner and we're all comfortable and we're all used to each other. Who is it that secretly you just don't care? And if they just went on their way and lived their sinful lifestyle and went straight to hell, it wouldn't cause you one loss of one minute of sleep. It wouldn't disturb you at all. That attitude is what God had a problem with. And Paul said, there's this contingent of people that as long as we've just got our little crew, our little crowd, and we're comfortable and all the bills are paid and we're preaching and we're being ministered to, that's fine. Is there anybody that you wouldn't want to be part of our church? 
Is there anybody you've had a conflict with or a problem with or you fired them or they fired you or your family had a dispute with their family or their family had a dispute with your family? Is there anybody that you really wouldn't want in our church? It fries my brain when I hear people say, well, they just need to go somewhere else. It fries my brain when I hear people say, well, we don't want them. And I've heard that. That's the attitude Paul was talking about, and that's the attitude God judges. Let me tell you something. This church is open to everybody and anybody, no matter where they come from or what terrible things they've done or what horrible decisions they've made. We are not going to close the doors of this church to them because they're but for the grace of God, could be walking your son or your daughter or your sister or your brother. So the doors don't shut here to anybody. You say, well, that's confusing. That's chaos. Oh, yeah. It's called ministry. It's called building the church. It's called preaching the gospel to whosoever will. That's what it's called. I'm not meeting resistance from you, I don't believe. There's resistance to that, though. It's kind of in the atmosphere. It would like to settle on every kind of good apostolic church and just kind of make us content with us and content with this. I'm not, I love us, but I'm not content with us. I love this, but I'm not content with this. We've got a city full of sinners and addicts and strung out people and dragged down people and knocked down people. We've got a city full of those kind of people. And they deserve the same chance we had to hear the gospel. Some of you, if we went back just a couple generations in your family tree... We'd have to be careful because it would be your family that somebody wouldn't want in the church because they wouldn't want your family dirtying up this clean church. Mm, my goodness. Would you lift your hands and just pray for a second and we'll carry on. I'm not trying to get stuck here, but the devil would like us to just kind of be awkward about that. We're not awkward about that. This church is open to everybody, no matter the lifestyle, no matter the sin, no matter the problems or the issues or the addiction or the bondage, no matter the history, no matter the past conflicts, no matter what they've done to you or you've done to them, or it's still open because if we ever close the church to one, we've not done the will of God. It's whosoever will. It's whosoever will. It was the opposition of these very same enemies of the gospel, the very same people that didn't want certain people in the church. They didn't want Gentiles around. It was these very same enemies of the gospel that had driven Paul out of Thessalonica prematurely. That's why he's writing these letters back to them. He couldn't stay. He had been driven out. And he says next, he said, I was, I was taken from you. He uses an expression here that means bereaved or, or orphaned. He says to them, we were torn apart by the enemies of the gospel. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. He said, 
They kicked me out of town. They chased me out of town. They were going to kill me and hurt you if I stayed. So they were successful in getting rid of me. And now for a short time, we're apart in presence, but not in heart. And he said, I miss you. And I love you. And I've invested in you. And I endeavored, I tried so hard, the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Paul kept trying to get back to Thessalonica. He said, wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. He said, my heart's there. I want to be there. I've tried to be there. I want desperately to get back to Thessalonica. I want desperately to continue my ministry among you in person. But Satan hindered that plan. The word hindered means to break up the road, to throw up obstacles, to thwart or prevent or impede progress. It means everything and more that you would think it means. Satan hindered Paul's plan. Satan hindered Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. But when one plan failed, Paul just came up with another plan. And that's why we have, 2,000 years later, two letters in the Holy Bible because when Paul couldn't go in person, he just sat down and he wrote letters. He couldn't do a podcast. He couldn't do a Zoom call. He couldn't send an email, but he could write epistles. And so we still have two books 2,000 years later that we're studying at CCC tonight because Paul refused to let the devil hinder his ministry uh, irreparably. He could hinder one area, Paul just sidestep it. He could hinder over here and Paul would just go around it. And Paul just determined, I'm not going to let the devil hinder me. Not permanently. Not indefinitely. We were taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart. And I just tried. I endeavored to see your face with great desire. I would have come to you. But that old devil, Satan hindered us. Brothers and sisters, CCC, sometimes the church just has to come up with another plan. Not another message, another plan. My goodness, if there was any year where Paul's words ring true, it would be this year. When we get shut down for three months of the year from in-person services, you know what? We just had to come up with another plan. When we couldn't do Sunday school, we just had to come up with another plan. When we have to wear masks and all look like Batman and Robin, we just do it and come up with another plan. When we're distanced and when we don't know when this is all going to end, Satan would love to hinder the church. But when Satan hinders and hell rages, sometimes the church just needs to sidestep that and just come up with another plan. I refuse to let coronavirus set the temperature of my life for the next two years. I refuse. Categorically, undeniably, I am going to carry on. 
I preached one conference in California this week. I'm preaching another one in Montreal this coming week, and I'm just going to carry on. I can't be there in person. I'm not flying there on a plane. You can all relax and take a deep breath behind that piece of cloth. I'm not going there. You don't have to report me to public health again. I'm okay. You're okay. But here's the thing. I am not going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs and suck my thumb and say, well, that didn't pan out. We're going to make it pan out. I was talking to Brother Cahosi today. They have so many restrictions in Montreal, so we're going to have a conference. <laughs> they can only have, I think it's 25 in a building. So they're just using multiple buildings. And we're tying it all together with a Zoom call. And we're translating it. Can you imagine that service? Greetings. Bienvenue. And then you wait for everybody to catch up, and then you say the next word. It is going to be holy pandemonium. But we're going to do the will of God. Brother Cahosi said that one lady, a Quebecois lady from 50 miles away, she's driving 50 miles to come to church every time. She, I don't think she's missed a service. And she's bringing her friends. They baptized a bunch of people this week. They all got the Holy Ghost. They baptized an 88-year-old woman this week who came with that lady. Just carry on. Satan may hinder Hell may rage, the devil may fight, the demons may torment, but if you are just going to sit there and let them pummel you, you are not worthy of the name Christian. Christians have been persecuted throughout all the ages of church history. We've got dear brothers and sisters right now in Guangzhou that are under intense persecution and opposition. Do you know what? They're not stopping. They're carrying on. They've got a pandemic and persecution. I think think we can survive and thrive and if the devil comes at us this way we'll just step over here and we don't have to be hindered indefinitely or permanently it's 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 amazing paul was so proud of the believers in this church i'm sure this church in thessalonica was like every church everywhere i'm sure there were people in this church who weren't living right, who were sinning, who had bad attitudes. I'm sure he had some saints that created conflict or gossiped or burdened others with their petty problems, just like today, just like every church. But collectively, see, Paul refused to get sidetracked by looking at one person that wasn't doing good or, or one situation that wasn't turning out right or one trial that didn't seem to have an end, or one sickness that didn't get healed. He refused to let that sap his spiritual strength and his vision. He chose, and I hope you choose, to look at the church not just as individuals and get discouraged because, oh, poor brother so-and-so didn't get his prayer answered, and poor sister so-and-so is still in that horrible trial. That's terrible. We'll keep praying. God will deliver. God will do his will, and we'll carry on. But if you can just choose to look at the church collectively. When you look at the church collectively, we are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the church of the firstborn. We are the bride that is going to walk on streets of gold in heaven. When you look at the church collectively, we're not struggling. We're not weak. We're not sick. We are wonderful. We are powerful. We are faithful. We are beautiful. When you look at the church collectively.
That's why you need a local church. That's why you need brothers and sisters. That's why you need Bible study and Sunday morning and Sunday night and prayer meeting. That's why. Because when we get together collectively, hell can try to hinder, but hell cannot prevail. The gates, the councils of hell, they cannot prevail against the church. When Paul looked ahead, and when he imagined them all in heaven for all eternity. That is what kept Paul going through unfair criticism. That is what brought joy to Paul's heart. Of all the rewards that Paul could possibly receive in heaven, he said, oh, you, the saints of God, you will be my best reward. On that day, you will be my hope, my glory, my joy, and my crown. He said, I don't care if I get any other crowns as long as you're there. I want you to be in heaven. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? He said, I'll tell you who my crown is. It's when I see you there. That's crown enough for me. That's reward enough for me. That's joy enough for me. That's heaven enough for me. If we can just get the people of God, the family of God, the church, our little kids, our young people, our seniors, our couples, our singles, if we can just bundle up the church and keep them praying and keep them faithful and keep them living for God and we can just get them all to heaven, that's enough crown for any pastor. That's enough reward for any leader in the church. Paul said, you'll be my crown on that day. And he said, I just want you to know that seeing you on the streets of gold will pay me back for every unfair criticism, for every opposition, for every sleepless night, for every toil day and night. It'll pay me back and more. You are my crown in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, at his coming. When he says that, he uses a Greek word, parousia. It was a common term in his day. And it meant this, a formal visit by royalty. When an emperor or a governor or a king or a queen visited, that was parousia. It was a formal visit by royalty. And when the New Testament church saw that word in their culture, they said, we're using that word. We're taking that word. We're stealing that word. And they began to use parousia, a formal visit by royalty to describe the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is going to be a visit from royalty like you cannot even comprehend. It is used 18 times in the New Testament. This is the first use of that word by Paul in any of his writings, but it won't be the last. And we will see that word, his coming, at his coming, a formal visit by royalty. We will see that word seven times in just these two letters. Paul is saying what we sing once in a while. What a day that will be.
when the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns from heaven and we get to forever be with him. We're not just going to be with Jesus forever. We're going to be with all the saints and the elders and the pioneer preachers that are already populating eternity. We're going to get to be not just with Jesus, but with them. But there's one more. We're not just going to get to be with Jesus and all our loved ones gone before. We're going to get to be with each other for all eternity in glorified bodies with no more sickness and no more suffering and no more pain and no more misunderstanding. That is parousia. That's when the King of all kings comes back. And any part you can play in getting God's saints to God's heaven, well, that is a pastor's greatest reward, but it's also a saint's greatest reward. Anything you can do, any price you can pay, any conversation you can have, any intercession you can make, any investment that you can, can, can do in that person, it's all going to be worth it when we get there on streets of gold. Because on that day, the people you've influenced and the people you've won and the people you've prayed for, I know we talk about all the crowns and all the rewards and that's wonderful and that's going to happen. But Paul said, there's one that trumps all of that stuff. When I see you walking down the streets of gold, you're going to be crown enough for me. You can't live in light of the end if all you ever think about is the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and whatever. That's in the Bible. But that's not going to inspire you. That's probably going to terrify you. But I'll tell you how you can live in light of the end is get heaven firmly in your view. Do everything you can to get yourself there. Do everything you can to get your family there. Do everything you can to get loved ones and friends there. And do everything you can in this beautiful entity that Jesus gave us and Jesus died for, the church. Do everything you can to help your church get everybody that we touch there. When you're friendly, to a guest that comes among us, when you reach out to somebody that's new or struggling, somebody you don't know, and you choose to go talk to them, instead of just talking to your same three friends that know all your business and every time your cat sheds its hair. Really? That's your whole life? The same two people staring at you over chicken chow mein at the diplomat every week of your life? Really? Every person you invest in, every person you help, every person you pray for, every person you lift up when they've fallen, when you get to heaven, you're going to look around. And when those people walk down the streets of gold toward you, they're going to be enough of a crown for you. If you never get any other crown, they're going to be enough of a crown for you. That's how you live in light of the end. It's not about the Antichrist. It's about our coming Christ who is going to split the sky and rapture his church and take us to heaven forever. That's how you live in light of the end. 
I'm finished. Would you lift your hands and give a great praise to the Lord in this room? I do feel the Holy Ghost in Bible study tonight, and I know you do. Don't just let this be the message from a man. Let this be a word from God to you through a man tonight. Receive the word like you would receive a word from the Lord, not just a word from a pastor. Let it motivate you. Let it strengthen you. Let it direct you and challenge you and change you because that's what the word does. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us. I pray for this wonderful church and these phenomenal people. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us. Like the old song says, just keep me true, Lord Jesus. Keep me true. Keep me true. Jesus, I want to make heaven my home, but I don't want to go alone. I want to influence and impact somebody else to go there with me. I want to meet somebody on the streets of gold that's there because of me. Jesus, I want to meet the members of this local church I don't want to leave any young person behind. I don't want to leave any child behind. I don't want to leave any new believer behind. Jesus, help us increase our awareness of our responsibility to bundle up this entity called the local church and take everybody we can to heaven with us. I pray it in Jesus' name. We just need to pray that one out and pray that one through for just a moment, church. I'm not pushing you or scolding you. I, I really am in the trenches with you. We just need to pray that through for a moment or two. Would you lift up your voice and let it be more than just a rumble or a mumble? Would you lift up your voice and, and just pray for a moment? There's freedom in that prayer. 